The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Hi, I'm Brad Bannon, the host of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, uh, a a political analyst for news radio station KNX in Los Angeles, and a columnist for The Hill. By the way, if you want to read my uh, observations on the twists and turns in the midterm elections in the Hill, uh, you can check them out at uh, muckrack.com front slash Brad Bannon front slash articles. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. My company, Bannon Communications, is the sponsor of today's show. Mondays on Deadline DC, I talk to the people and players behind the politics and policies that drive our great nation forward. Today on Deadline DC, our guest in the first half hour is Mabinti Kwashi, uh, who is a uh, politics, national politics reporter for USA Today. Uh, she's going to discuss uh, the midterm elections in general uh, and the U.S. Senate uh, race in uh, Georgia in particular. Then in the second half hour, our guest will be CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, who joins us to uh, discuss uh, the latest developments in the Russian, in the Russian war against Ukraine. Uh, First, before we do anything, though, we're going to play this clip uh, from Friday night's debate in Georgia uh, between Senator Raphael Warnick uh, and his GOP challenger, Herschel Walker. Because I work for Georgia and I'm not going to be distracted about what Herschel Walker says about me. He doesn't tell the truth about himself. He said that he graduated from college. He didn't. He said he was valedictorian of his class. He wasn't. He said he started a business that doesn't even exist. And the other night when I said you, he pretended to be a police officer, he presented a badge as if that were proof that he really is a police officer. And now he wants us to think that he's a senator. I think the people of Georgia are wise and discerning. And they know that at the end of the day, I know who I work for. I work for them. One thing I have not done I've never pretended to be a police officer and, and, and I've, never, I've never threatened a shootout with the police. Well, and now I have to respond to we that. Are, we are, we are no, moving no, 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 on, no. gentlemen. I have to respond to that. And you know what's so funny? I am worked with many police officers <laughs> and at the same time... Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, excuse me, Mr. Walker, please, out of respect, I I, I need to let you know, Mr. Walker, you are very well aware of the rules tonight. Yes. And you have a prop. Yes. That is not allowed, sir. 
Yeah. I ask you to put that prop away. Well, it's not a prop. It, it, this is real. And he said, I but, have a problem. I never went to law enforcement. it is considered a prop, Mr. Mr. Walker. Yes. Excuse me, sir. Yes. You're very well aware of the rules, aren't you? Well, aren't he, you aware of he the rules? brought up the truth. Wait, Let's talk about the truth. Th thank you for putting that yes. prop away. Okay, that was a clip from Friday night's debate in the Georgia Senate race between the Democratic incumbent, Raphael Warnick, and his Republican challenger, Herschel Walker. You know, uh, and uh, our guest, by the way, who you can see if you're watching on Facebook or Twitter Live, uh, is McBinty Kwashi, uh, who is a national politics reporter for USA Today. Uh, she's here uh, to discuss the midterm elections in general and the Georgia Senate race in particular. Welcome to Deadline DC, McBinty. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Brad. It is a pleasure to be here with you today, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know, let me say this. Uh, I was listening. I watched the debate on uh, TV uh, Friday night, and listening to that clip, my first uh, inclination is, is this what American politics has come down to? Um, you know, that was the uh, most prominent clip that you can see on the Internet uh, from the uh, debate Friday night. And, uh, you know, why is, why, well, I have two questions. First of all, why was that uh, the most resounding clip from the debate Friday night? Let me ask you that first. Well, Brad, I thank you for that question. I think it's a great question. I think part of the reason why it's the clip that went viral is that I think there's been a perception sometimes that Democrats don't call out Republican hypocrisy. So you notice, right, when um, Senator Warnock says that Mr. Walker is playing a police officer, you can hear the crowd like cheering and clapping and hooting and hollering. And so I, again, I think the Democratic base really wants to see some of their leaders get into the ring in the ways that Republicans have done in the past. If you remember, um, this is a little, it's related, I'm just gonna take you on a tiny bit of a tangent. But, you know, when President Biden, when he announced the student loan debt cancellation, if you remember on his Twitter feed, he started calling out Republicans who took PPP loans and then were attacking the student loan debt cancellation. And that was a huge hit with the Democratic base. So I think part of the reason why that clip went viral is that the base wants to see and they want to know that their lawmakers are going to go to bat and they're going to call out hypocrisy because we are living in the age of quote unquote fake news. Um, and so I think that Senator Warnock willingly calling out Mr. Walker to his, to his face. And plus the, the, the badge was, a, it, it was a little comedic as well. And so I, I think it talks to the absurdity of the times that we are living in right now. Yeah, it's too bad uh, that Mr. Walker isn't running for the Senate in Texas because there's actually a TV show called Walker, Texas Ranger, and that would have been fit in right uh, very well. Okay, let me ask you another question. Uh, our audience uh, is, is mostly progressive. I'm sure yeah. there are some conservatives out there, but I think most of our viewers and listeners are progressive. And a lot, one thing that I don't think progressives understand at all, and maybe you can help them out here, uh, is that here you have a Republican candidate 
uh, who is, you know, walks under a cloud of scandal. Uh, as Senator War uh, Warnick said, you know, he's uh, made up things about businesses he started, uh, being uh, a police officer. And then, of course, there's the whole controversy over um, abortion uh, and his, uh, you know, support for a woman who had an abortion, which he denies, I guess. Um, why is it that this race is so close uh, when the uh, Republican challenger is a walking scandal? And I don't think a lot of progressives understand it. I love that question. Um, I have a few ideas. Okay. So, <laughs> so number one, I, I was. Would. That's why you're on the show. Yeah. So I wasn't at the debate on Friday. But I was in Georgia at the first rally Mr. Walker held after the Daily Beast reported its news about him paying an ex-girlfriend to get an abortion. And I talked to a bunch of people who went to that rally. And let me tell you, not one person told me they wouldn't support Mr. Walker even in the wake of the abortion scandal. And you know what's interesting to me is that a lot of people, when I asked use their faith as a reason why they wouldn't um, not support him. You know, they would say, well, you know, Christ forgives people and, and everyone should be forgiven. And, you know, he talks about faith. So one, I do think that people feel a real connection to him, especially because he talks about his faith. But I think also another underlying factor is that Republicans want to take back the Senate. They have been out of power for two years. And if they are going to take back the Senate, they can't afford to lose Georgia. So essentially, they can't afford to abandon Mr. Walker at this point, because to abandon him at this moment, three weeks before the midterms, is essentially to say that the Democrats are going to keep control of the Senate. And the Republicans, although they've had a bit of a, a rough summer, they are back on the upswing. And they, they might actually have a chance of taking back the Senate. It's still a toss-up, right? No party is, like, guaranteed to win the Senate. But if Republicans hold on to Georgia, they, they might take back control. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to interrupt you there because we have to take a short break for our radio listeners. Uh, but we will continue uh, the uh, discussion with uh, Mabinti Kwashi. Uh, national political reporter uh, for USA Today uh, with our video viewers. So uh, don't go anywhere. And with the radio listeners, we'll be back in a couple minutes. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, we're discussing midterm madness. Uh, we only have uh, 21 days uh, or 22 days until the midterm elections. Uh, our guest in this half hour is uh, polit national political reporter from USA Today, Mabinti Kwashi. Uh, Mabinti, uh, one of the things uh, that this will give me an opportunity to segue from Georgia to the national picture. Uh, Friday, uh, 
former President Obama announced that he was going to campaign in Atlanta and also uh, in Milwaukee, where there's also a hot gubernatorial and Senate race and somewhere else, too, I think. Uh, what impact do you think uh, the former president will have on uh, the midterms nationally? OK, so just before um you know, we came back, we were talking about how this is, you know, a tough year for Democrats. And part of the reason it's a tough year for Democrats is President Biden's low approval numbers. His numbers have not been great. No. And not at all. And so if you, I know we're segueing from Georgia, but I just want to bring it back just a tiny bit. If you okay. remember from the debate with, um, for on Friday, Senator Warnock kind of dodged the question about campaigning with President Biden. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think nationally, Democrats understand that it's probably best if maybe he doesn't come to the states where it's really close. And so I think that's where they turn to former President Barack Obama, who is very popular with Democrats. Um, him and, and, for, and former First Lady Michelle Obama, they're still very popular with the base. And if Democrats are going to hold on to control of the Senate or the House, they, they definitely need black voters to come out again at record numbers. And and um, President Obama still has a lot of popularity with black Democratic voters. And so I think this is their way of maybe not necessarily sidelining Joe Biden, but maybe keeping him away from the campaign trail, but having someone with the gravitas and the popularity of the office of president. So they're turning to um, former President Barack Obama. Okay. Okay, let me ask you another question about the midterms. Uh, it seems to me that when we started this year, um, uh, everybody assumed uh, that this was uh, going to this campaign was going to be a walk in the park uh, for uh, the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, the, the situation changed uh, significantly uh, when the Supreme Court issued the Dobbs decision. Uh, and based on the national polls I've seen, about uh, two out of every three Americans uh, thought it was a bad idea uh, for the Supreme Court to limit a woman's right to choice as uh, defined under Roe versus Wade. And that boosted Democratic fortunes significantly. Uh, what's happening now? We had a big GOP surge. We had a Democratic surge over the summer. What's happening now and why? Well, I want to say I actually find this year's midterms to probably be one of the least predictable midterms. So I actually find it a little bit funny when I see some stories making all of these predictions, because this year has really upended the conventional narratives when we think of midterms, right? Like, historically, the president in power usually loses seats during the midterms. It happened to President Trump. It happened to President Obama. It, it happens, right? But this year, right, we had the Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade. And, I mean, that is seismic. I mean... And we will find out after Election Day how much that galvanized women voters, suburban women voters, right? We, we saw in Kansas that, you know, yeah. women might show up and they might show up in ways that benefit Democrats. Um, and that's what I meant when I alluded to uh, Republicans having a bit of a tough summer. I think, you know, I don't know if they were prepared for the backlash. I don't think so. Yeah. And, right, but then we also have, I mean, Rents are really high 
right now. It's it's a tough economy for, you know, the average American. And that's not helpful to Democrats either. So I again, I feel like this midterm, we're we're going to see some surprising things because I don't think we can just predict it out in ways that we thought we could. And, you know, when I, as I'm talking, I just realized I forgot to mention that, you know, President Biden makes his student loan debt cancellation news, that announcement canceling up to twenty thousand dollars. I mean, we that might galvanize young voters, right? Young voters who maybe that $10,000 or that $20,000 really makes a difference in their quality of life that might galvanize them to turn out and vote. Um, It just depends. I mean, I know we're three weeks out from the midterms and it kind of seems like, oh, the election's set, you know, done and over with. But I mean, actually anything could happen in the next three weeks. And so- And probably will. (laughs) Exactly. And probably will, if we're being quite honest. Um, Because again, we, we do have election deniers running we do have some candidates running to make history. Again, Stacey Abrams is trying to become the first black woman elected as governor in the U.S. We have Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, you know, trying to make history in, in his state. So, Wisconsin. I mean, yeah, in Wisconsin, um, which is why I think, you know, I'm not shocked that former President Barack Obama is, you know, campaigning and stumping for him. And so I, I just think that this midterms, anything could happen. I don't necessarily think the predictions are again that I'm seeing in stories. I don't know if they'll pan out. Things are just so up in the air. Uh, speaking for myself, someone who uh, was absolutely convinced Donald Trump could never be elected president of the United States. I've gone out of the prediction business because uh, who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks? I don't know. My guess is they'll. I have no idea what it is, but my guess is there will be a significant event that plays out in the last few weeks and we don't know what it even is but you know it will happen i guarantee you uh in terms of other issues the democrats are trying uh republicans are trying to make a big late minute last minute push on crime do you think that's working Oh, yes, I do think it's working. Um, Crime has been a very good policy issue for Republicans to hit Democrats with. Um, And it it has historically, right? You know, thinking back to the 90s, you know, people want to live in safe neighborhoods. And if they feel that their political leaders are not trying or are not helping them to have safe neighborhoods, they'll vote for their opponent in a heartbeat. Um, And I think that's why we see, you know, Thinking of Georgia, I think that's why at the debate, you know, we heard Senator Warnock talk about how he supports law law enforcement officers. He touts that bill that, you know, that bipartisan gun safety bill. Again, I think that that's part of the reason why we saw Democrats, you know, ease away from the defund the police um, slogan. And I think that's also why Republicans were trying to shut down the defund the FBI slogans as well. It just doesn't play well. You know, it doesn't play well either on Republicans or Democrats to be seen as a party who doesn't want to make sure that police officers have the resources they need to protect our neighborhoods, to protect our communities, to protect our families. 
Uh, Mabinti, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on Deadline DC. I hope you can uh, come back and talk to us after the midterms are over. I'm sure you'll be busy, very busy between now and then. Our guest has been Mabinti Kwashi, uh, national political reporter for USA Today. In the next half hour, we'll turn to national security policy and CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. He's going to talk about the Ukraine and the U.S. troubled relationship with Saudi Arabia. We'll be back right after these messages with more of Deadline DC. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. This half hour of Deadline DC is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, national security policy in this half hour. Our guest will be an old favorite of Deadline DC. No, not an old favorite. A, uh, you know what I'm trying to say here. Um, I'm old. I shouldn't say you. But anyway, uh, uh, we're going to start uh, Cedric Layton, a CNN military analyst, uh, U.S. Air Force Colonel retired. Uh, but first, we're going to play this clip about uh, Russian drone strikes on Ukrainian capital. Very random, but they are definitely civilian targets. So one of the explosions happened right here. You can see it from uh, my home. Uh, and um, uh, these explosions were aimed to the energy infrastructure building that uh, is located nearby. However, the other ones were to the civilian buildings, to people's homes. And we just learned that one person was killed under the rubbles. And this is so terrifying. You know, today I woke up 7 a.m., of the sound like a mo motorcycle and we all know what the sound means because right after you hear it you hear a hit and then an explosion it is the sound of iranian kamikaze drones uh, the the russians started using them uh, very frequently recently to uh, create targeted attacks on uh, on people's homes and on infrastructure and this is extremely scary because um, they have much uh, much more of them than the missiles and rockets and uh, uh, they're using them just against anything they want and it's harder to uh, intercept the drones uh, rather than rockets. So while we are still asking the world to help us with Air Force protection systems, we need to be one step ahead and already work on more sophisticated systems to prevent the attacks of those drones. Because what happens usually when they hit is an explosion and then a fire that is very hard to put up. Uh, it's hard to imagine the terror that people in Ukraine have lived under in the last uh, uh, few months since the beginning of the year when the Russian invasion started. I don't even know how to relate to it. Uh, that was Kira Rudik, who is uh, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, talking about the Russian drone strikes on civilian targets in Kyiv. Our guest in this half hour is uh, CNN military analyst Cedric Layton, uh, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, he is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. 
He founded his company after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. And his Twitter handle uh, is the same. Uh, his website is CedricLayton.com. Welcome back to uh, Deadline DC, Colonel Layton. Thanks for joining us today, as always. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with uh, Ukraine since we... Uh, played the clip. Uh, it seems to me, and if you think I'm not, please tell me if you agree or disagree, uh, that uh, the Russians, and especially Vladimir Putin, are increasingly desperate. Uh, they're launching drone strikes on civilian targets in Kyiv. Uh, they are uh, uh, undertaking this massive uh, effort uh, to recruit uh, new soldiers for the front. Sort of reminds me about those stories about the press gangs that they used to have for the British Navy, mm -hmm. where anybody uh, is eligible to serve in the uh, armed forces and go to Ukraine and die. Um, and he's even threatened nuclear strikes. Uh, am I right or wrong about, you know, Russia seeming increasingly desperate? Well, I think you're right, Brad. And uh, yes, there are certain things that Russia has. It has, compared to Ukraine, a lot of lot more people, uh, you know, larger number of uh, people in uniform, more weapons, uh, larger defense budget, all those paper things that, uh, you know, look good when you're you know, putting together a table of which army is the largest, which army is perhaps the strongest, which army has the most weapons. But all of that goes away, as we discovered uh, fairly quickly in this war, when the other side gets to show whether it can handle it or not, whether they can deal with an invasion of this type or not. And the Ukrainians have really uh, outperformed uh, their paper capacity. Uh, they all, always had the other capacities, uh, but uh, they were not as evident uh, as, uh, as you know, what they really would have needed to, to have been. But uh, yeah, the, Putin is uh, very desperate. Uh, you know, it's very clear in the fact that the drones that he's using, um, these are called Shahed 136s under their Iranian name. The fact that they're Iranian uh, speaks volumes. Yeah. They're not Russian. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not Russian. He's not got a homegrown uh, drone industry that is providing these uh, weapons to his army. He does. There is a drone industry in Russia, but it is obviously not meeting the needs uh, that uh, the Russian army has in Ukraine. And so uh, there are a lot of weaknesses that are coming to the fore here. And it's showing us that the Russian army is definitely not all it was cracked up to be. Yeah, it seems to me that, uh, well, you know, it seems to me, but that's why we have you on the show, uh, that Putin is demonstrating to the world that uh, Russia is not the military power it was cracked up to be. I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, he's basically resorted to desperate measures and he seems to be floundering uh, in his invasion of this tiny little country, uh, which has a lot less people, a lot less soldiers uh, than the Russians do. And it seems, to, you know, do you think 
Putin is going to continue to double down on this misadventure, or do you think he'll try to find some way out? I think he, you know, he's going to try to do both, which sounds really bizarre. I mean, nobody, you know, if you and I were, Everything you know, you know we, we, we would never do that. You know, we would never, neither one of us would be like that. But but the, the way this is uh, playing out, uh, you know, you can tell that Putin is reaching out to folks uh, as diverse as Elon Musk and various political leaders, you know, like, such as Turkey's Erdogan, uh, Hungary's Orban, and, you know, a few others out there. Uh, he's uh, kind of figuring out, the, testing the waters uh, to see what he can get and how he can peel people off of the alliance, the Western alliance that has been created, uh, largely by the Biden administration and NATO. And that, uh, that speaks volumes, of course, to uh, their diplomatic uh, aspects here. Uh, but uh, you know, when it comes to what Putin is trying to do, on the one hand, he's looking for this off-ramp. On the other hand, while he's doing that, he is also trying to find ways in which to uh, prosecute the war. And in his mind and in the Russian army's mind, uh, the way this is working is if you can't go after the Ukrainian military, if they prove to be elusive, you go after the civilian targets. And they never really... Uh, put the civilians off to the side as a no-strike zone. Uh, they were always within the strike zone of, the, of Russian armaments ever since the start of this invasion. So uh, that was one of the things that uh, they're continuing to prosecute. And what it means, Brad, is that uh, you know he's kind of taking, a, I guess, what I'd call a dual-track approach uh, to this whole thing, get what he can. Uh, but at this point, uh, you know, there's, he's trying to find some kind of a face-saving way uh, to get out of this, uh, but uh, face-saving means he can't ever uh, show that he uh, was wrong or that uh, he did made a mistake or any of those kinds of uh, things. Uh, you know, they, they, there's uh, no modesty with someone like that, and that's that's what we're dealing with here. I think. I'm going to ask you a question, and we only have a minute left before we go to break. Uh, is his threat? to use nuclear weapons an idle threat, or is it a real possibility? It is a real possibility, at least from a technical standpoint. Say that. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, you never know exactly what's in the mind of someone like that, Brad, but the, the very fact that he made that threat, and we know he has weapons that are nuclear capable, including tactical nuclear weapons, uh, so it is something that he can definitely uh, use. Uh, it would be very unwise for him to use that, but technically, yes, and because it's technically a threat, uh, we have to take it very seriously. Okay, uh, we're going to uh, take a short break uh, for our radio listeners. Uh, we'll be staying uh, with our uh, viewers on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. Uh, our guest in this half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is still CNN military analyst Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, we've been talking about Ukraine. We're going to switch and talk about the troubled relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia and also uh, the uh, new Chinese Communist Party Congress. We'll get back from this very short break. More from Deadline DC right after this quick message. Okay, welcome back uh, to our radio listeners. 
Uh, by the way, if you're uh, listening to the show and you want to watch it too, uh, you can watch it at uh, twitter.com front slash Brad Bannon or on facebook.com uh, front slash deadline DC with Brad Bannon front slash videos. You can also watch it on Brad on YouTube. Uh, we're everywhere. Uh, our guest in this half hour is CNN military analyst Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, we're talking about uh, the relate troubled relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia and the kingdom's uh, latest plan to uh, limit oil production, which causes a big political headache right before the midterm elections for the Biden administration. Let me ask you this, Colonel Layton. Uh, there have been, in, you know, since the Saudis uh, and OPEC announced their decision um, with the Russians, uh, which makes it even more complicated. Uh, several Democratic, prominent Democratic members of Congress have called on uh, the uh, Biden administration to cut off military support uh, to the Saudi kingdom. Uh, do you think the Biden administration uh, is seriously considering doing that? I think they might be, but here's a little caveat to that. It uh, turns out that there's actually nothing in the pipeline in terms of major weapon sales uh, to the Saudis, at least nothing that we publicly know about. Uh, and so big deals like, uh, you know, those for airplanes or tanks or missile systems, uh, those things are not uh, being purchased by the Saudis right now. The Saudis have actually over the last few years uh, gotten a lot closer to the Russians, obviously, as we see through their actions, you know, with this uh, production decrease, uh, they worked that out definitely with the Russians, uh, you know, in the, in the past week or so. But the other thing that they've been doing is they've been buying a lot of Chinese weapon systems in addition to the ones that they get from us. So uh, the idea of rethinking uh, the Saudi-U.S. security relationship is certainly something that is probably long overdue. Uh, you know, when you look at the chessboard that is the Middle East, you have to be careful, though, uh, because right now we have a very unstable Iran, uh, and they could cause a lot of mischief, although they have a lot of internal political problems right now. And uh, I would argue that uh, if we do want to jettison uh, the Saudis, we would have to have another strong partner. And the best candidate for that would be a different kind of Iran. And we're nowhere near getting that kind of a, a partner out of the Iranians at this particular point in history, in the future, perhaps. But right now, it's too early for that. So we're kind of stuck between a series of, of bad regimes at this point. So this, is there anything the United States could do to, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, get the Saudis and OPEC to expand oil production? Or is it we just have to, you know, sit there and take it, basically? Well, I think there are several things that that could be done. One of the things would be that uh, the countries of the West, and including uh, Asian countries such as Japan and uh, South Korea, uh, find other alternative energy sources. Now, that's a lot easier said than done, uh, but uh, we should have been thinking about this 
for quite some time now because we know that the Saudi system is not uh, one that will last forever and it's also as its, uh, its its major disadvantages uh, very repressive and the fact that they were involved in the murder of uh, the journalist uh, Khashoggi uh, shows that um, they cannot really be trusted uh, in terms of human rights or in terms of really security policy in general. Uh, I didn't plan on asking you about this, but since you brought it up, uh, there's been a lot of tension uh, in Iran uh, from the West uh, on the demonstration from women in Iran who were trying to uh, get out from under the strict uh, Islamic uh, strictures on women. Uh, do you think that there's going to be the, the women in Iran will make any progress or is it just a pretty much uh, a dead issue. I don't think it's a dead issue. I think the question, Brad, is whether or not the women and those who support them uh, in Iran are going to be successful this time. They almost uh, made it back in 2009 with the so-called Green Revolution, uh, but uh, that fizzled and the current regime was able to stay in power. Um, that is a likely outcome, unfortunately, if you look at the statistics of how regimes have changed in the last few years and whether or not they actually do change, even with popular demonstrations. But there's something about this that at the moment at least feels a bit different. Uh, and it is certainly possible. It does remind me of 1979 when the Shah was toppled and the previous revolution in Iran occurred. Um, so it is possible that something big could happen here. I think we have to be ready for that. Uh, I think we should do what we can to stand by the people of Iran. Uh, but it's going to be uh, you know, something where a lot of outcomes are possible and uh, we have to be prepared for any one of them to happen. Okay, uh, and finally, I do want to talk about uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, the uh, Communist Party Party Congress uh, is meeting, uh, and the Chinese are making very threatening noises about uh, taking Taiwan. What can you tell us about that? So this is the 20th Party Congress and Xi Jinping, the current leader of China, uh, is going to, in all likelihood, ask for a third term. And that, uh, you know, given everybody, every leader since Mao, is basically a an unprecedented thing. It kind of, you know, if there's an analogy that one can use, it's kind of like uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, when he grabbed his third term and then it went on to a, a start a fourth term back in the 1940s. Um, this is kind of the Chinese equivalent of that. Uh, there is some opposition to it, but it's opposition that you don't see within the Communist Party. It's outside of it. Uh, the, and he's also, she himself, has made it very clear that one of his big goals is to take Taiwan if necessary, by force. Uh, and he is the first Chinese leader in a long time to actually specifically advocate uh, for that course of action when it comes to whether or not he would de facto recognize the independence of Taiwan, not diplomatically, but just the fact that they wouldn't uh, you know, go in and invade it. But in this case, that, uh, that little figment of uh, 
of diplomatic nicety has gone away, and he's basically saying he will take Taiwan at a point of his choosing, and that uh, that is something that is antithetical to U.S. interests. It's antithetical to uh, the interests of other uh, aligned nations with the U.S., and it's something that uh, we will have to really watch very carefully because it has the potential of upending the balance of power in the Pacific, plus it also has the potential to take off and cut off the uh, chip, uh, the, the uh, internet chip, IT chip, uh, supply because a lot of that does come from Taiwan. And uh, if the Chinese get control of that, uh, that could have significant impacts on the global economy. If uh, the Chinese decided to invade Taiwan, I assume uh, the United States Pacific Fleet would get involved. Uh, can uh, Taiwanese, with the U.S. help, uh, resist an invasion from China? Uh, would it lead to a major war? Uh, what? I think the possibility of a major war is certainly there, and it's going to be, uh, you know, we have to do everything that we can to avoid that. Um, if the Taiwanese, uh, you know, establish themselves as a kind of porcupine-like entity, which it makes it very hard to, to conquer, kind of like what the Ukrainians are doing, uh, that then becomes something that uh, would give the Chinese pause. Uh, they might be so emotionally invested in the idea of taking Taiwan uh, that it might not matter, but every effort has to be made to make it seem really hard for them to do this kind of an operation. Now, would it, if they're going to do it, would it be a good idea to do it now while the United States is sort of hunkered down uh, in uh, supporting Ukraine uh, and all sorts of troubles in the Middle East, um, or are they just going to play a waiting game? I think they're trying to see what happens next in Ukraine. Ukraine is kind of serving as a model for uh, President Xi to see, uh, you know, how he should potentially handle things uh, when it comes to Taiwan. Of course, they're very different uh, systems, very different countries involved, uh, but he's watching the U.S. reaction when it comes to Ukraine, and he will make several calculations. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's a bit analogous to the period running up to December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese were in a so somewhat similar position to the Chinese, uh, that the Chinese are in today, and that uh, is, uh, you know, something where the Japanese took the gamble and attacked us, thinking that we would not react. Uh, the Chinese had best be careful, even if we're preoccupied, uh, we have a tendency to very quickly galvanize against threats like that. Okay, uh, Colonel Layton, thank you very much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure having the show because we don't spend enough time talking about national security policy. I want to thank our guest uh, today, McGinty Kwashi, uh, national political reporter for USA Today, uh, and Colonel Layton, and a tip of the hat to my executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, for making sure the trains run on time and we stay online. We'll be back next Monday with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon.